Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello and welcome to the Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Carla Long, and today I have a wonderfully dear friend who attends the Salt Lake Congregation with me. Her name is Monica English, and she's going to talk to us a lot about peacemaking and peace building. First, before we jump into that, Monica, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I was born and grew up in Utah, except for a five-year stint when I was a child in LA, when my parents went to school out there. Um, I'd been married for a whole lot of years. I have a whole lot of kids. I have kids that are born to me, but I also have kids that uh, are adopted from Zambia and then kids that came to us in foster care and became our permanent children as well. So that keeps me really busy. I found Community of Christ about eight years ago, and it made my heart sing. Um, there Just so many things. And one of them was the effort towards peace and being a, a peace church and a church that recognizes that war and violence are, are problems in and of themselves, not solutions for conflict. Yeah. So I, um, I have just a few credits to finish my degree. I took a break when my, my father passed away and it's probably about time to get back in and, and finish that up so I can say I'm, I'm degreed as well. Uh, Monica, you said community Christ made your heart sing. Well, I think you make a lot of hearts sing just by being a part of the congregation. You do such wonderful work in the congregation and you're so good at urging us toward a peace and justice places. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about what got you started in this peacemaking, peace building business? Sure. So, um, my path has taken a lot of twists and turns. And so the reason I got into it is not the same reason I'm involved now, because initially when, uh, when I looked at going back to school in my forties, it was because I was interested in, in, a in being able to do the master's program at Graceland university <laughs> for community of Christ. I don't know that that's where my path will take me now, but I needed an undergraduate degree and the school that I went to, Utah Valley University, had this amazing program called Integrated Studies, where rather than focusing deeply on, say, biology or on philosophy, you could marry different interests into a degree that, that fit well. So I had a friend who uh, her two emphases were peace and justice studies and geology which made for a pretty amazing intersection of being able to understand things like climate change and um, how people work with the land. So for me, my um, emphases uh, were peace and justice studies, along with religious studies and gender studies. So uh, three, three aspects that really fit together well and were very, very interesting to me. 
it wasn't very long into um, this degree that uh, it was brought up that there would be a conflict studies focused study abroad in Northern Ireland, which I really was intrigued by. And um, so once I decided that I was going to work towards going on the study abroad, I switched my um, my focus in the papers that I wrote, in the things that I studied, and tried very hard to bring them all back to Northern Ireland, figuring the more I understood before I went on study abroad, the more the, the richer the experience would be when I was actually there. So I wrote for a class on history of Islam. I wrote a paper on the connections between the Irish Republican Army and Qaddafi in Libya. <laughs> um, so, so I really went out of my way to, uh, to, to get as broad an understanding before I went. Um, and as I was reading and researching with my um, focus also being on gender studies, I came across this really interesting group, political group called the Women's Coalition of Northern Ireland. And um, I wanted to know, um, because I knew they that the Women's Coalition had two seats at the table for the peace talks in 1996. And I wanted to know how that happened because Northern Ireland is an incredibly patriarchal society as are most societies with, with constant ongoing conflict. It really changes the, the gender dynamic. And um, so I asked my professor, are we gonna meet any of these women from the Women Coalition? And he said, oh, I can, maybe I can make that happen. So the study abroad itself was incredible, amazing. And, and I had done enough research to be able to pick out kind of the, the us against them clues and signals that would be known to people within the culture, but not necessarily recognized for people outside. And I was able to meet and speak with um, a woman named Mary who'd been the secretary for the Women's Coalition. Well, the Women's Coalition was fascinating to me and there was little written about it. And so I came back and I uh, applied um, to UVU for a grant to fund going back for two weeks to uh, research and interview women from the Women's Coalition. So that was my second trip to Northern Ireland. And I, uh, while I didn't have the lion's share of interviews, I hope to have what I did find was a few really critical interviews and uh, a whole lot of archival research that had been tucked away and I stumbled across. So when it came to peace building, I think the Women's Coalition is the is the group that really made me start thinking of things because they, of, of how, how it works on the ground. Because so often outside peace experts want to come into an area of conflict that they don't understand, where, where they don't have the deep-rooted uh, connection to culture and conflict. And so I, I wanted to understand 
the signals that were being sent out, how the women were using these in a way that was beneficial for um, the furthering of gender equity. And their story is fascinating. I just, these women are, they're bad A. Um, the, it, it started with women. So in Northern Ireland, men were the fighters and women were the take, the ones who took care of the home. And that's the way it is in, in uh, conflict areas everywhere. And so you had a lot of single women as, as husbands were uh, jailed or killed or off to fight. Um, and women's organizations to help each other popped up. When peace talks became a possibility and there were going to be elections for uh, the people in the peace forum, the precursor to the actual peace talks, um, these women got together and knowing that their political representation was, was incredibly poor, they wanted to have women's voices at the table discussing peace. And so they formed a loose organization and sent letters to all the political parties and said, would you please put women up on your, um, your ticket for elections? Yeah, this is important. They didn't get a response from any but one <laughs> from, the, from the Sinn Féin party. And so clearly that was not going to achieve their goals. The, the elections were done in a slightly different way, which benefited a, a small emerging party. Um, because in peace talks before, they'd only included the big actors and, they, and the big actors weren't necessarily the most violent actors. So if you elected people on a straight election, you don't get to talk to the people who are deepest in the trenches of the conflict. So they, there were, they called them top down. So they had people elected from different districts, but they, um, they also had 20 spots for um, what they called top up. So uh, you get these people from here and then the nine other parties who got the most votes were given a, given a seat at the table, even if they didn't win a single constituency. And the women got together, figured out what it would take. If they got 100 people in each voting area, then they thought they had a good chance. They got 1% of the vote. And with 1% of the vote, they got two seats in the forum. Uh, this party, though, was different. And they played on the, the cultural um, understanding of the time. So they said, we're not going to be a sectarian group. We're not going to do, we're not going to be Catholic or Protestant. We're not going to be British or Irish. We are taking no position on the constitutionality. One of the big issues was whether um, Northern Ireland should be ruled by the crown for the UK or by um, the Republic of Ireland be connected with the Republic of Ireland. So that's what all the other groups were coming to the table to, to argue about. And the women in the women's coalition said, nope, we're not doing it that way. And so they strategically structured their organization with um, diverse women. So you had a Irish 
Republic factory worker. Um, and so, and, and it, they, they looked at that all the way down. When they ended up going to the forums, they were, I believe there were a few other women at the forum itself. Um, but when they moved into actual peace talks, these two women were, were it. But they, they got terrible treatment. They were, the, there was one particular representative who would moo every time they spoke through the whole speech. Um, and they were left out of things. They were told to go home, that they, were, they didn't belong there and um, suffered some pretty, pretty brutal misogyny. <laughs> and they talked about what, what do we do? Do we, how do we, and they, they decided, they just put a board outside their office doors and they would just list the things that had happened with the name of the person who did it outside their door. And soon enough, and when the press found out that board was there, all of that bad acting stopped. Um, because they weren't, so the forum was just to gather information from a large group of people. But then when the peace talks actually happened, there were two representatives from each party that were part of the forum. So it was these two women. Um, and because they were really the only party that had investments in both sides. While they didn't have a whole lot of influence on the floor, they found they had broad influence behind the scenes because they could go talk to the representatives of the Protestant Unionist Loyalist parties, and they could go talk to um, the, the representatives from the Christian Irish party. And they could, while these people were not in a space where they could talk to each other, they would talk to one of the women's coalition as a middle actor. And with that, um, they could go back and forth and moderate, hey, they say this, you know, can you, can you move on this? And, and so it wasn't flashy what they did. And it probably wasn't known what they did. Um, but with it, 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 is, it is very clear that it was, it was the work of the women's coalition behind the scenes that allowed for any agreement at all to come, um, to, come to power or to come to fruition is a better word. Uh, but what was really interesting to me is that once the peace talks were over and the women's coalition had done that job, they continued as a political party, but all of the other parties realized, huh, maybe we should include women. And so um, the women's coalition basically succeeded themselves out of a party because the, the representation of women in the other political parties rose to the level that, um, that the women's coalition kind of became defunct. They would, they would have liked to have continued on for more, but it, it, had, it had followed its 
followed its course. It it was interesting. A couple of years back, I looked at the statistics in uh, in the elected body for Northern Ireland, and the representation was just over a third were women, um, which was huge. That's bigger than the U.S. <laughs> it's bigger. Utah, my state, has eleven percent women in elected positions. And the United Nations says that to have a meaningful influence, there needs to be at least, oh, I, I think it's 20%. It might be 30. Uh, actually, it is 30. Uh, but we're not close here. But what it, what it took was people on the ground thinking creatively. Um, which is so often the way peace moves forward. In conflict areas, when people from one culture come in and try to tell the, the country, the people, how to create peace, it often fails. Um, and the, but if what is done is, is people coming in as consultants and working within the culture, um, it it really um, it really can change things, and it can be something as simple. There there was a, a conflict situation in South America um, that uh, it, that I read about in a peace book by John Lederach, who's an amazing uh, peace author, who encourages people in peace work to put themselves in a back seat. Um, to to act as consultants, but to let the the people within the culture figure out how to navigate that culture in a way that is meaningful to um, to those in conflict. So, uh, for example, in one area of South America, um, the the women had quite a lot of influence over the fighting men through the songs that they sing. When things would start to work up and um, and if if the the warrior songs were sung, the men would work themselves up and then they would off they would go to fight. If the women started singing the songs that were for a peaceful end to a conflict, then things calmed down. But there was no way that somebody outside of that culture could have gone in and said, do this, or taken something from our culture and say, do this. Um, so peace work takes humility, um, takes the ability to walk into a place and say, I really don't know what I'm doing. Um, teach me. It, it takes the humility to not be in charge to to step in um, as you're needed, but but step back and allow for um, for people within the conflict to make those changes. Um, and Jesus was he was really good at this. When you um, when you look back and you understand the way parables and words that Jesus was saying would have spoken to the culture that he was in. Um, 
recently I gave a sermon and did did some deep reading on um, the Sermon on the Plain, which has a lot of the same things as a Sermon on the Mount, but was in a flat space, a flat space, which um, I love the image of rather than Jesus up above everyone. The Sermon on the Plain, he came down, was surrounded by crowds, had to be nervous about the crowd being crazy. And then he started talking about things like turn the other cheek or if someone takes your cloak, give him your your coat as well. And these to us sound an off thought like just a really nice thing to do. I'm going to stand and I'm going to take it without responding. But one of the sources that I read pointed out that in that time, uh, a slap was given with the back of your hand and it would be done with the right hand, your righteous hand, not your left hand that was sometimes used for yucky things, but also all throughout the Bible, you talk about wanting to be on the right hand of God. And that's the righteous side. The left hand of God is the evil side. And so when Jesus says, you know, someone hits you, turn the other cheek. Well, turning the other cheek for a hit does two things for the person receiving the violence. It requires, um, it requires them to look at each other in the eyes as the face turns, but it also, um, because the slap had to come with the back of the hand to hit with the other hand meant that the, that the person doing the hitting had to step into a space where he was not choosing the righteous side where, where it was shameful to him. Um, so it turned it back around the whole idea of if someone gives you their cloak, give him your, your tunic or your coat instead. Um, if someone was judged to need to give their coat, they still had their tunic and typically they only had one coat and one tunic. Um, so the idea is, is that if they also gave their tunic, they were, they were exposing their nakedness, which shamed the viewer, the seer, not the naked person. Well, probably the naked person, but it, there was shame brought on both. And so these were two ways that Jesus showed to, how do you take back your own power? How do you how do you take a slap or, or the loss of a coat and turn it into something where you can still stand in your power and it's the other person who has to recognize the, the shamefulness of the act of violence? Um, and you find these sorts of things when, when you really look at, um, the, at the Bible and the New Testament and how... Uh, how it would have read to the or or been heard by the people who first heard these stories it's very very different to today and jesus was a master at flipping things on their head using cultural um using cultural understanding so I, I, the hope is i have the interviews for the women's coalition i have Oh my goodness, boxes and boxes of archival research. 
Um, now I just have to write that paper. <laughs> um, but some of my piecework has been closer to home. The, a professor that I spoke with in Northern Ireland, I was, I was fascinated by parading and the messages that parading was sending. And he said, and I was saying I wanted to study it. And he said, go back to your own culture and look around. There are opportunities there. And so, um, yeah, uh, viewing parades through a lens of power and control is, and gender expression has been really interesting. And that's, I hope to write on the Pioneer Day Parade and the, the way that it expresses gender and the way that it, um, uh, it signals power. Um, who has the opportunity to shut down streets and mobilize police to, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing. And it, and it's not just all over there. It's wherever you are. Um, the other, the other um, bit of research that might not typically fall under piecework, but I sure think it does is a paper that I wrote with um my sociology professor, Debjani Chakravarti. She, um, she's from, she's a native from India. And when she was India in India, she wanted to do a paper on people who were Muslim and gay. And as she started that, um, that process, she got death threats. And they were serious enough that she backed off and didn't do it. So when she was hired at UVU and came here and started to understand the culture in Utah, the very mainline LDS culture, she, she thought, huh, I could do this here. And she started doing the work to, um, to interview and study those who are um, LGBTQIA and and actively mainline Mormon, she realized she didn't have the cultural knowledge to be able to do this paper. And she asked if I would come, come on board and provide that context. We ended up interviewing 14, I believe, people who identified themselves as a sexual or gender minority and actively Mormon, Latter-day Saint Mormon. And, um, Hearing the stories of people who are navigating spaces, I would think, and a lot of people would think were untenable, and how and why people make the choice that was not a choice I could make for myself, um, comes to understanding. Uh, it, it, it speaks of understanding, and it is piecework. It is, it is work to um, bring hearts and minds together when we can understand. Um, because I know, I know plenty of people who are gay and have left the LDS church due to the pain that they experienced trying to be in those spaces. But there, there are people who are deeply invested in both of those identity markers within one person and understanding their their points of view, um, their how how they navigate their world uh, is is a is a peacemaking effort as well. So there's peacemaking to be done 
whether or not you're going to go to war-torn areas. There is peacemaking um, to be done in our own backyards in the way that we teach our children in the, um, in, in the local political events in, in showing up at pride is an act of peacemaking, especially for those of us. My, my first pride, I was Mormon and I went to pride and was blown away at the love um, at the love from mothers where I had a sign. I, I went, I was Mormon and I, I had a sign that said Mormons building bridges. And it was a bunch of Mormons who were standing up and saying, we love you no matter what. And I remember standing on the side of the road after we finished our walk and I still had my sign and there was a group of mothers of transgender kids. Um, and this mom, she was probably in her sixties, came running over to me with tears running down her face and said, can I hug you? And I said, yeah. And she hugged me and she said, I wish you'd been there when my son was little. He could have used you. So there, there are ways and efforts to stand within your own culture and understanding. And from that place of culture and understanding to reach out to people who are different. I love that. That's where, um, that's where this has gone. Uh, Cause I mean, I don't always know where podcasts are going to go, but I love that this is where it's gone because, you know, like not all of us can go to Northern Ireland. Not all of us can go to Ukraine, which is, um, I don't know when you're listening to this podcast, but right now there's uh, Russia is still attacking Ukraine. Um, and, um, and I probably wouldn't be any help there anyway, <laughs> because I don't understand that culture and I don't understand Northern Ireland, but I do understand my culture where I'm at. And, um, I think that we are creative enough people, um, that we can figure out ways to do that. So I really appreciate that. That's where you went. And we have an excellent model in Jesus. Jesus very much used his own culture and those little quirks in his own culture to really turn things around on their head, which is just, it is a really incredible lesson for us. Yeah. Best peacemaking has to come with a, with inspiring curiosity and wonder. I think that is, that's it right there. Inspiring curiosity and wonder. And yeah, take a look at what's around you, but look with fresh eyes. Don't look with the eyes you've been looking with forever, but look with fresh eyes, try and notice something different. Notice something new, notice a way that you could do make life better for, for people. And the best way to look with fresh eyes is to sit down with somebody who sees things differently than you and listen with an open heart so that we can open our eyes. And listen, 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 listen. You're absolutely yes. right. That word listen, oh, it's so hard to do. <laughs> yep. <laughs> listen with an open heart. That's wonderful. So Monica, is there anything else you've learned about peacemaking and peace building that might help us out? Yeah, one of the one of the most interesting things I came across that that was a fun interesting thing because I was able to share it with multiple professors is um, and I the idea of the symbolic construction of community. Uh, 
academic book written by a professor named Anthony Cohen, looked at the symbols and what they mean and how they function within a community. So we can just look at an American flag. Actually, that's probably not a good example right now in our political, <clears throat> but okay, we're gonna look, we're gonna look at a at a British flag. A British flag symbolizes something to those who live in Great Britain. It symbolizes enough similarity among the people that they can rally around it. But if you were to ask the individuals, what does that mean to you? Uh, they would each give a different nuanced answer. So yeah, we can go back to the American flag, which in my mind has a really different meaning now than it did five years ago or 10 years ago. But that's part of the co-opting of a symbol that meant one thing being taken and used and turned into something else. But it's done in a way that is um, almost unseen. Uh, so when when did the flag start to represent somebody who votes Republican and not somebody who votes Democrat? It, you know, it was a it was a gradual co-opting of a symbol, but communities need symbols to rally behind. Um, and the symbols that that are rallied behind can often have an underground meaning. And I'll give you an example from. Um, from Northern Ireland, there are, um, because I think it's one that's really easy to see. Um, in Northern Ireland, uh, it's said <laughs> that the Irish don't live in the past. The past lives on in Ireland. Um, they're very connected to uh to their history and, and especially moments in history that they find uh, prove their point. So every July 12th, there are huge parades by the Protestant Unionist Loyalist side of things, huge parades, um, drums that sound like, uh, that sound like guns, um, the, uh, the, the dress is all military dress and the roots that they have marched for literally hundreds of years are roots that take them right through the Catholic, Irish, Republican neighborhoods. Um, and so this parade is, actually it's not just one parade, they go on and on and on all through July. Um, this parade to the Protestant British is this family gathering, come together. It's amazing. Don't take our tradition away. It's not that we're going through Catholic neighborhoods. It's that this is the way we have gone for so long, and it wouldn't be the same. On the other side, you have the, the Republicans saying it sounds like guns, it's it's a show of force, it's um, even if they're not carrying weapons, it's putting us in our place and reminding us um, that we are we are the lesser here. 
Um, and so this parade has very different meanings when it's between these two areas. And to go even further, when I went to the first of these parades, they were playing these American songs, Home, Home on the Range, and um, Sloop John B by the Beach Boys. Da-da to Sloop John B, my grandfather and me. And I, um, I asked one of the men who was there, I said, why are they playing these songs? And he said, oh, they just play some, anything that's, um, anything that's fun. If it has a good tune, we'll play it. And I thought, okay. And so I enjoyed the heck out of that, that parade experience. I got really involved. I skipped out on another thing because it was like, wow. I'm, I'm. The next day I went to a presentation by a, uh, by a professor whose expertise was on parading in Northern Ireland. It just happened that way. And he was talking about the parades and the, the meaning that might not be picked up by the person who is just stepping in as a tourist. Uh, and he pointed out that yes, they have these and, and they'll play Sloop John B, they'll play Home on the Range, but Home on the Range, when they sing it, behind closed doors, they sing, no, no Pope of Rome. And it's a, it's a song all about how awful the Catholic church is. And another song talks, um, Sloop John B is, is all about sending the Finians, the, the Irish back home, send them home. Why don't you go home? We fed you go home. And so Symbols that are clearly understood one way can have a secret quiet meaning behind doors that, that are rallied behind um, and have to be to, to create a true community. There are symbols that people rally around. I know at church, the symbols of my community at church would be the communion table. It would be um, it would be the pride flag that we choose to um, display. Uh, it would be the cross. Um, it, it, it would be candles because they're so connected for me with Lent and Easter and Advent. Um, it would be communion itself, the, the bread, the, the wine, um, the, the acting in unison, they don't, well, for me, I don't think that communion has magical power. It sure has a binding power. Eating, drinking, coming together with our bodies, acting in unison with our bodies is a way of creating a symbol of our bodies and that symbol is, is a coming together. I, I choose to be in community with you because our values align in enough of a way that we want to gather together and enhance this thing that we're feeling. And hopefully by bringing individuals together who feel this way and who 
who have symbols that speak to their hearts to bring them together, we become better than we are individually. I love thinking about communion like that. And I, I love thinking about those symbols like that. Um, and it, it does really give a whole different, a whole different view of it. You know, communion it is, can be really simple. And it, you know, even though we only do it once a month, uh, it can still become something that is rote, you know, something that we just do. But when you can attach and recognize those different symbols and how important they are, it can become meaningful, very meaningful once again. So I, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, the, the symbols, not not just the physical symbols, but uh, ourselves, our actions, the, the eating, the drinking, the doing it at the same time, the kneeling, that, that all is our body becoming a symbol of our place in this community. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. I love thinking about that. That's very cool. Thank you so much, Monica. I really appreciated this. I've appreciated hearing your story, more about your story and um, learning those things that you've been learning over the couple, last couple of years. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say before we sign off? Oh, just, I'm so glad to be a part of Community of Christ. Community of Christ makes my heart sing. Oh, Thank you so much for saying that. And again, you make our hearts sing as well. Um, so thanks again. Thanks for being here and sharing your knowledge with us. You're great. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.